And just as you think about that language, you have opened up uh, my ear, or you have opened up an ear uh, for me. It, it is much like the, the way that we might speak, uh, speak in our modern context. If you see a nice car driving by, uh, you might say nice wheels uh, to describe someone's car. Uh, but the, the description or the compliment about the wheels is really meant to describe the whole car. And much as a, an open ear uh, highlights uh, one's recep uh, receptivity to hearing, it also is meant to represent the whole, uh, the whole life uh, uh, being one of obedience, uh, one's entire person. Well, as we turn uh, back in our Bibles this evening, let us turn to Leviticus uh, chapter 8. We have been uh, looking at uh, the book of Leviticus in our evenings together, and uh, this evening we're coming to Leviticus chapter 8, and you'll find that on page 86 in the Church Bibles. <clears throat> this is God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him. And in the breastpiece, he put the Urim and Thummim. And he set the turban on his head and on the turban uh, in front, he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering and he killed it. And Moses took the blood and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it and purified the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull and its skin and its flesh and its dung, he burned up with fire outside the camp as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it, and Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the head and the pieces and the fat. 
He washed the entrails and the legs with water, and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the, ha on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. Then he took the fat and the fat tail and all that the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and with the right thigh. And out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat and on the right thigh. And he put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it for a, uh, a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses's portion of the ram of ordination as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments and also on his sons and his son's garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his son's garments with him. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting and there eat it and the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. And what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn up with fire. And you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed. For it will take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you do not die. For so I have commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. As mentioned, uh, we have been looking at uh, this book together in our evenings. Uh, and the book of Leviticus we have highlighted uh, can be a difficult or a challenging book uh, because uh, it feels foreign to us. It talks about animal sacrifices. It talks so much about blood. Uh, it feels very disconnected from our, our life today. But one thing that makes the book of Leviticus challenging is, is that it has so little narrative to it. Uh, many books in the Bible are filled with life events. Uh, it tells us about things that took place in history. It tells us about a sequence of events and helps us understand the story that is happening. You read the book of Exodus and you hear about how a people are rescued uh, from Pharaoh, how a people are brought up out of the land of Egypt, how they cross the Red Sea, 
how they come to Mount Sinai and how they're brought, given the law of God. We can read of many uh, narratives in the Bible. And when we read them, uh, we can easily enter into them, appreciating what is happening in history. Leviticus, in many ways, is challenging because so much of it is instructions. It's ceremonies. It's, it's uh, procedures about how to offer up certain offerings. And as a result, we can get bogged down in details, wondering to ourselves, what is this all about? But this evening we're coming to uh, a section of Leviticus that actually gives us narrative. It's telling us about events that are happening and the sequence of a story. And so over the next couple of chapters, we begin to appreciate and we're reminded of what is happening here is part of a much grander story. Leviticus wants us to remember the big picture if we're going to make sense of what this book is all about. Because it's not just about blood and sacrifices, but it is about answering the question of God's purposes. The book of Leviticus is asking the question, how is it that sinful people can come into the presence of a holy God? That question, how is it that we can be accepted in God's sight when we ourselves are defiled? And that, that storyline is really the grand story of the Bible. And Leviticus is helping us uh, to remember that. If we, if we lose sight of that question, we lose our bearings as to what we're looking at when we look at Leviticus. You remember this morning, uh, we were reading in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, it tells us about how our first parents sinned against God. How Adam and Eve uh, were banished from the Garden of Eden. But do you remember when we were reading there in Genesis 3, it told us that what made paradise paradise was, was there where they had, came into the very presence of God. It said in verse 8 that, that God walked in the garden. That's what made Eden Eden. They were able to have a sense of intimacy with the living God. Adam and Eve could walk in the garden and enjoy God's fellowship. But after Adam and Eve sinned, they were banished from the garden. Their sin, their defilement, their corruption and rebellion ultimately estranged them from God and ultimately made a separation between them and their God. So how is it that a people who have been banished from God's presence as a result of their sin can come back into God's presence. And really the book of Leviticus is helping us understand. The book of Leviticus, you remember, we've already looked at various sacrifices that were offered. There were the ascension offering, there was the peace offering, there was the, uh, 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 the purification offering, all kinds of offerings and sacrifices that were made. But Leviticus is teaching us that to come into God's presence is really something that the tabernacle was meant to convey. The tabernacle was that tent up in the wilderness where God promised and purposed to make his presence known. The tabernacle was the place where God would meet with his people. And as you think about what the tabernacle represented, it was meant to parallel Eden. That's important, because if we miss that, we won't understand why the tabernacle is so important for the people. 
The tabernacle, like the Garden of Eden, was entered from the east. It was from the east movement towards west that one came into the very presence of God. You remember at the entrance of the Garden of Eden, it tells us there in Genesis 3 that there was the cherubim and uh, the flaming fire that kept guard at the entrance of the very presence of God in the Garden of Eden. But what does it say about the tabernacle? The tabernacle was also marked by a veil. And before you passed through that curtain, before you went beyond that veil, imprinted in the curtain were the cherubim. It was meant to communicate that as the priest is going beyond the veil, he is passing that barrier that sin had caused. He was able to pass by where others couldn't. And so as we come this evening to look at what is Leviticus teaching us, it's telling us how is it that we can come into God's presence. And Leviticus is teaching us that it is through the work of a high priest. We need a priest. Some of those connections between Eden and the tabernacle, we can also see in different ways. When it's said there in Genesis 3 that God walked in the garden in the cool of the day, you will find that later on as we're reading through Leviticus, it'll say something very similar. In Leviticus 26, it says about God, and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. What is the tabernacle all about? This is where you meet with God. This is where you can come into the very presence of God and be accepted. This is where you can enjoy fellowship with the living God and not be consumed. But as we're going to uncover in Leviticus, that's ultimately accomplished through the work of a priest. And this evening we want to see that because Jesus is that great high priest, we can come into God's presence. The New Testament makes a big deal about Jesus being our great high priest. The Bible teaches us when we say Jesus is Savior, what do we mean when we say Jesus is Savior? How is Jesus a Savior? And we've talked about Jesus' work in a threefold way. Jesus is prophet. Jesus is priest. Jesus is king. As our prophet, he is the one who declares God's truth to us. He reveals to us the, the will of our God. As our king, he's the one who leads us in the way of righteousness. He's the one who conquers our enemies, our sin. As our priest, he is the one who represents us before God. He's the one who intercedes on our behalf. And he's the one who secures our standing with God. And so as we think about Jesus as a savior, when we think about the, the book of Hebrews, and it'll say things like, we have such a great high priest. Why does Hebrews celebrate that? Why do we need a high priest? And really Leviticus is answering that question for us and helping us to appreciate the priesthood. This evening then, we are looking at Leviticus chapter eight. And Leviticus eight is about the consecration 
of the priesthood. It is about how God has ordained an office. He has ordained a role that is to be performed in order that people might have fellowship with the living God. We want to think about this chapter in three thoughts. We want to think about the context that demands uh, uh, the need for a priest. We want to think about the ceremony itself. And then finally, we want to think about uh, the culmination uh, of this uh, priesthood in the Lord Jesus. Well, first, we want to think about the context that demands the need for a priest. Momentous events uh, usually have certain characteristics to them. Uh, If you go to a wedding, there are certain things that you might expect. Uh, You might expect there to be a ring. You may expect there to be a a certificate uh, being signed. You might expect there to be a certain dress uh, seen. But you expect there to be a great crowd. Uh, The fanfare, the, the celebration is something of a public spectacle. And so many people come together uh, to celebrate what is happening. The special clothes, uh, the certificates, all of these things are are calling attention to the significance of the event. Here in Leviticus 8, you see that there's many things that are highlighting this is a momentous event. The priest is going to be putting on special clothes. Uh, But more than that, notice that even at the beginning in verse 2 there, it says, Take Aaron and his sons and his garments and the anointing oil and the bull and the the sin offering and the two rams and the the basket of unleavened bread and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Two times in these verses, it'll go on to emphasize that all the congregation is to assemble. They are to witness what is taking place because it is of great importance. And they are to witness it because they are to recognize their need uh, of what is happening. Moses was to gather not only Aaron and his sons uh, and the, the, the garments and the sacrifices, but the people uh, at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Notice as well in verse 4, uh, it says uh, that God wants his people to witness what is happening in the ordaining of the priests. This is God's will. Uh, This isn't something that they have thought up themselves, Moses and Aaron, but rather something that God has commanded. In other words, coming into God's presence is not something of human initiative, but rather it is God intervening and condescending to meet them in their need. And so uh, we see here what is happening uh, is uh, from God's own uh, initiative uh, because of what the people stand in need of. Why is it that the people uh, stand in need of a priest? Uh, As mentioned, the sin of our first parents resulted in them being banished from the garden. But now it is on the basis of the work of a priest that they can once again come into God's presence and have fellowship uh, with the living God. Maybe you're sitting here this evening and the idea of depending on someone else uh, to, to serve your interests sounds demeaning. Uh, we are used to being an independent people. Uh, uh, many of us grow up uh, with that emphasis of do it ourselves. And the idea of having to rely on someone else can sound offensive to us. But if we stop and think about what the Bible is teaching, that our first parents were banished from the garden on the basis of their sin. If Adam was removed from the garden because of his sin, 
What arrogance is it to think that I can come before God on the basis of my own purity, on the basis of my own merits, and think that I am better or that I am good enough? What, what Adam teaches us is, is that God is holy and that no sin will come into his presence. That's what this whole ceremony is meant to convey. Aaron must be cleansed if he is to come before the living God. And it is only through this representative that one is able to come before a holy God and not be consumed. So to depend on uh, the Lord's provision uh, may be a humbling thing, but it is the God-ordained method by which we might uh, be accepted in his presence. So there's the, the, the need for a priest. It is on the basis of our defilement. It is on the basis uh, of God's ordained purpose. But there's also the ceremony itself. Uh, and we're told about how the priests are consecrated. There in verse 5, it says, And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. Again, many times in this chapter, seven times in this chapter, it's going to emphasize that these things are being done as the Lord has commanded. And the people are to be marked by obedience, that this is God's purposes being unveiled. But there's many things that are highlighted in this ceremony. The first is uh, the washing ceremony. Maybe it's different in, in your home, uh, but in our home there is a specific nights of the week uh, which are bath night. Uh, when we recognize that everyone has to go through the shower, everyone has to go through a bath. We recognize that in the course of the week we're going to get dirty. We're going to become physically defiled. And so we, we wash ourselves. That's a recognition of uh, keeping our outward health. But here, Aaron is going through a, a washing because he's recognizing not just outward defilement, but he's conveying something that he recognizes that he is inwardly defiled, that he is not pure as God is pure. And so he needs to be washed before he comes. He needs to be cleansed before he comes before God. The second part of the ceremony is the garments that he wears. Uh, the priest's uniform is very elaborate, and other passages tell us more about uh, his uniform. Uh, but it was uh, a very elaborate uh, uniform for the high priest, and different than the regular priests. But it also carried with it royal overtones. The high priest, his dress communicates not only that he's a representative of the people, but it teaches us that he's a representative of his heavenly king. And his dress actually shows that. Uh, we're told, for instance, that there were layers to the high priest's uniform. The base layer was a linen shirt uh, that was worn next to the skin and fastened around with a waist at the waist by a sash. Over this, there was a robe. Uh, the robe was oftentimes uh, the clothing of kings. But even more important is, is that the robe, uh, when it was blue, uh, is also attributed uh, to a kingly or a regal characteristic. In other words, his robe was to convey something of a kingly state, uh, um, uh, even uh, that as well. He uh, not only had uh, the robes, but on top of that, he had something that was known as an ephod, uh, which was a kind of tight-fitting waistcoat 
uh, we could think of it as a vest with the shoulder straps, uh, something that was worn over top of his robe. Uh, on top of the ephod, he had the breast piece, uh, something that sat on his chest. Uh, tied to the ephod by two golden chains was the breast piece, which rested uh, up, uh, over his breast. And on the breast uh, plate, there were the 12 precious stones, uh, each engraven with the names of one of the tribes of Israel. That was meant to convey that the high priest uh, represents the people, even as he comes into the Lord's presence. The people watching then were to see that the one who went into the Lord's presence did so representing uh, the people themselves. So there's, there's symbolism happening here. As, as the priest goes in by himself, he goes in not simply for himself, but he goes in bearing the people over his heart. He goes in carrying them uh, in, uh, he, uh, in as he does his work. There was also the turban or the headpiece uh, on Aaron's head, which was, uh, had a plate of pure gold, which was with the engraving holy unto the Lord. Not only uh, did this consist of gold, uh, but the word for headpiece is a word that sometimes is elsewhere translated as a crown. Again, highlighting something of his kingly state. So he was to lead the royal procession, uh, that is the priests, in serving the king of heaven uh, who made his dwelling with his kingdom people. The priest is a representative of the people, but he is also one who is serving his king who is enthroned in heaven. So this ceremony is marked by washing. It is also marked by uh, the elaborate garments that he wears. It is further marked by his anointing. Uh, the oil uh, was placed upon him, and oil was meant to consecrate something unto the Lord. When oil was applied to utensils, or when it was applied to the altar, it meant that that now was set apart for the Lord's service. And here we're told that the high priest had the oil poured on his head. Uh, he was to be entirely uh, uh, serving the Lord in this consecrated role. Then we're told about uh, the purification offerings and the ascension or the burnt offerings as well uh, that were to be offered up uh, uh, to make atonement uh, and also to purify himself of his own defilement. But then finally, there is the ram of ordination. And you see that in verses 22 and following. A second ram was offered as a ram of ordination. And this offering has similarities to some of the earlier offerings but there was also a striking difference. In the previous offerings, the blood was never applied to the offerer. But here, it is applied to the priests. Uh, it is applied to their right thumb, to their big toe, and their right ear. The application of the blood was meant to express entire dedication to the Lord. Uh, something that is uh, fully consecrated now as belonging to the Lord. And that taps into what we were saying in Psalm 40. You, O Lord, have given me an open ear. The priests were to be marked there. Even their ears, they were to be attentive, listening to what God had said. They were now to be doing the hands and the, the feet, uh, responding to God's will in complete obedience to his ways. And that's what's being communicated here, even with the application of the blood. And all of this, uh, this whole ornate a ceremony uh, had, uh, took, was a process taking seven days 
where they remained at the entrance of the tent of the meeting and offering a bull uh, uh, each day during that period. So what was Israel to learn from all of this? They were to think, how is it that we can come before God? And Leviticus is teaching them that God will walk in his tabernacle and man will once again walk with God. But it will be accomplished as the high priest goes into the tabernacle. A high priest who is cleansed of all defilement. One who comes bearing the people on his heart. And committing himself to the will of God in complete obedience. But the people were to understand that it is God's purpose. That they can come before God only through the priest of the Lord's own choosing. That it is through his work that one can be accepted in God's sight. We said already that the New Testament highlights that this whole priesthood was really anticipating the coming of the Lord Jesus. And you see that even here in Leviticus. Because the priesthood of Aaron was flawed. The priests had to offer up sacrifices for themselves because they themselves were defiled. They, they, they couldn't actually embody what they were representing because they weren't pure. Furthermore, it tells us that the priests were ones that were to be marked by complete obedience to the Lord. But just like any one of us, the priests had sinful natures. And they sinned just like you and I do. In all of these ways, it was pointing forward to a better priesthood. A priesthood that would be marked by complete obedience. And a priesthood that would be marked by an anointing of the spirit beyond measure. That's what Isaiah says when he talked about the coming Messiah. That the spirit is upon him above measure. That it won't be just on his head. But that he will be fully consecrated to the Lord in obedience. That's what we were looking at in Psalm 40. Behold, O Lord, it is written in the scroll of the book to come and to do your will. A body, an open ear you have prepared for me. The words of the psalmist were expressing complete obedience. And that's what you see in the life of Jesus. Because when Jesus is baptized, we see the spirit descending on him in the form of a dove. He is being consecrated for service. He is being endowed with the spirit beyond measure. You remember when Jesus is uh, a young uh, boy, when he goes to the temple, there is a process in which he is being consecrated for his public ministry. He's going to the temple and he's inquiring, he's asking questions. He's being set apart and equipped for his calling so that when his public ministry begins, he is able to carry out the will of God perfectly. And so the New Testament celebrates that we have a great high priest. The good news is that there is one who is entirely obedient to God. There is one who is marked by complete obedience. There is one who is given the spirit beyond measure and is able to bring us into the very presence of God. That's why Hebrews celebrates we have such a great high priest. In Hebrews chapter 7, it says it was fitting that, he sh that we should have such a high priest, 
holy, innocent, undefiled, and separated from sinners, and exalted above all the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did it once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints a men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. What's the relevance of all of this? It answers the question, how can I come into the presence of a holy God? If God is truly just and will by no means spare iniquity, if he will not look upon iniquity, who is too holy, as Habakkuk says, to look on evil, how can I, if I have any defilement, be accepted in his sight? Leviticus says it's only through a priest. It's only when you have a representative who can come into God's presence on your behalf, one who bears you on his heart, and one whose service is acceptable unto God based on his obedience. And what the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament is saying is, is that we have that in Jesus. That Jesus has been accepted in God's presence. That Jesus is marked by obedience. That just as Jesus was anointed with the Spirit beyond measure, as our high priest who bears the names of his people on his heart, they too receive the Spirit, and they too have a secure standing in the kingdom of God. Just as the people watched the priest go in, they said, we have a way of access in him. So the believer now, sinners in the, in the new covenant, we can look at Christ who has been exalted into heaven and say, I know that I can be accepted before God because Christ has been approved because Christ by his single sacrifice has covered my sin and he has been made accepted in God's sight. That's why the priesthood is so important. That's why it's so vital for us to think about Christ's work, his ongoing work even as a mediator because it's on his merits that we can stand before God. Because God is still holy. And we are still sinful. And we need to come before God as he has revealed. We sang there in Psalm 24. Who shall stand uh, in his holy presence? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. When the people were singing that. You can imagine how they would think of that. In terms of answering it by the, by the priest. It's the one who has been washed. It's the one who is pure. That's our priest who goes into the tabernacle. And for us, how is it that we can come into God's presence? It's through our great high priest who always lives to make intercession. Just uh, as the high priest uh, 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 bears the names of his people, uh, so Christ, as our great high priest, uh, bears the names of those who belong to him. When we understand the work of a high priest, we can understand how we can belong in the kingdom of the heavenly king. The people were to see their belonging to God depended on the office of a high priest. He was set apart 
And so Christ came into this world so that we might know uh, our place in God's heavenly kingdom through faith in him. The consecration of the high priest is an important development in redemptive history. But we want to look at it in light of the overarching story. How can we come into God's presence if our first parents were removed from the garden? Leviticus is saying we come through our high priest. We come on his merits, his obedience, his sacrifice, his purity, his willingness to stand in our place. And when we recognize that, then we can celebrate with Hebrews. We have a great high priest, one who brings us into the very presence of God. And our confidence is in the fact that he is holy, innocent, and undefiled. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We're thankful that it explains and anticipates the coming of the Lord Jesus in history. We pray, Lord, that we would understand what Jesus came to do, that he came to give his life to cover the sins of his people, to purify them and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. But we thank you that he has entered into the heavenly tabernacle, that he has entered into heaven itself, and that as a result, all who belong to him, all those whose names are imprinted on his palms, can know of their standing before you. So we pray, Lord, that we would not shrink back from an understanding that you were the judge of all the earth, that we would not shrink back from an understanding that we are guilty before you, but that we would be people who respond uh, to the unveiling of your purposes, of your grace, in the establishment of the priesthood. Go before us now in his name. Amen.